Welcome, Internet, to another episode of the hit, internationally famous podcast, Peep This Noise. I'm Logan Johnson. I host this podcast with the two wonderful summer children sitting to my left and right. You guys want to go ahead and introduce yourselves? I'm Greg Marchant on your left. And I am Nathaniel Johnson on your right. That was a really good, like, Captain America nod. Greg is Captain America on your left. <laughs> Coming up. Um, That's exactly how it feels. Do you guys smell that here in the studio? Captain mm. America it's a throws little... his <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that was a good pull. But do you smell that in the studio? Seriously. It's getting a little fishy in here, isn't it? I thought it, it smelled a little bit like a good Corona. It mm. is. I think I'm. I think I'm starting to uh, starting to lose my hair and you know grow some scales and stuff like that. Oh man, yeah, you definitely are. Yeah, it's my fault. Seriously, can we? I come. A- my my ancestors come from a little town on the uh, on the eastern seaboard, up uh, up north, um, you know, near Arkham. Oh yeah, is that Ipswich? In- <laughs> Dunwich. No, uh, <laughs> oh yeah, maybe it was Dunwich. No, some of those hillbill, some it... of those hillbillies up there. Oh. oh wait, no, I've identified the scent. That scent is racism. You're from Innsmouth. <laughs> oh, is, is that what we're smelling? Yeah. So uh, we're today in Pete this noise. We're going to be talking about a piece of media Greg brought to our attention and, and recommended we read, which is H.P. Lovecraft's. Um, Incredibly charged tale, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, the Shadow over Innsmouth. Wait, now hang oh, on. Oh, it is so hard. I, to I read knew about we Shadow. To that. <laughs> I knew about Shadow over Innsmouth before Greg brought it to our attention. This is just the one. He's like, "Hey, you guys haven't actually read this. We're reading it." Yeah. No, I mean, I knew about it. Well, okay. You don't need to defend your. <laughs> I, knew it. I, I knew about it in the vague, nebulous way I... that one just knows. Oh, yeah, that's an H.P. Lovecraft story, and that's all they know about it. Sure. So, to, sort of in the vague, nebulous way that the main character of the story seems to know that all Innsmouthers were terrible. Right. (laughs) Right. So, Greg, go ahead and give us a little bit of background here. Uh, I'm going to pass to you here to to lead us into the bulk of the episode. Okay. I think the the shadow over Innsmouth is considered a pretty important part of the Cthulhu mythos. Um, And um, it's it's been called by some one of H.P. Lovecraft's better pieces of writing. And having read a few of his stories... This is true, and that's also not saying very much. <laughs> yeah. It's a hard read for multiple reasons. Oh, good. I, I felt... Okay. <laughs> I, I kept not wanting to read it because I'm like, I hate everything about this. <laughs> All right, so, let's, let's play a fun little new segment I'm going to add to the Peep This Noise oh universe, no. which is, oh, no. how many times did Logan Johnson fall asleep <laughs> while he was dealing with the media? <laughs> Was Anybody it? Anybody want to guess? Was it five? Was it A five, B three, or C one? <laughs> Excuse me, I've actually mis misreported. Uh, any guesses how many times I fell asleep while we were doing? Let's this? see. We've had this piece of media on the table for uh, over a month. Now. Okay, I mean in the like two hours that I spent reading it right before we recorded. I'm, I'm going to go with one. Twice. <laughs> it was three times. <laughs> so if we'd had another co-host, that probably would have worked. One, two, three. So, so the answer is C for all of our for all of our uh, listeners out there who are playing along. Yeah, and that's S E A, right yes. in tone and keeping with the Shadow Over Innsmouth tale. I didn't fall asleep. I how does he describe it in the book? I, I passed into a fainting spell, the likes of which I had never experienced before. <laughs> um, yeah. So you you said this is a pretty important part of the Cthulhu mythos. Do you want to give a little bit of background to that mythos and H.P. Yeah. Lovecraft as a character I'll, for people who? I'll just don't I'll know. be kind of. <laughs> 
I'll be kind of brief. The Cthulhu mythos was something that Lovecraft started and then encouraged people to add on to, like encouraged his contemporaries to, you know, make their own characters and stories in. Think like the D20 system from Dungeons and Dragons, <laughs> like in 3.0 and 3.5 times. Like, hey, we made this just like you guys use it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that was a wild time. And it, it includes, like, some consistent locations, like Arkham, which is, I believe, where they get the name Arkham Asylum for, like, the Batman mm -hmm. franchise and Wait. stuff like that. Yeah, that's a Lovecraft pull. Yeah. It's pretty cool, right? Um, so, like, it, <laughs> yeah, it, it is. includes things like Arkham and Miskatonic University and the, uh, the Necronomicon and things like that. Um, and this, I, this particular piece of fiction kind of doesn't establish any of those things, but pulls in a lot of those things as it like references background a lot of noise. Them, yeah. Um, and it kind of, uh, the, the one, the one thing that it establishes is some like concrete lore on the, on the group called the deep ones, mm -hmm. um, which are the, which are the fish people in right. the story. Um, but yeah, so the, um, the shadow of Rinsmith was, originally written in 1931 Oof. and it was rejected by the magazine weird tales in 1933 because it was too long for them to publish in one edition of the magazine and too huh. uh and too like i don't know too short too um too weirdly paced for them to split into two and publish it across two editions yeah, of the magazine. Yeah, because that's why they rejected it, huh? Chapters three huh. and four are right. <laughs> of all the reasons they could have given to reject it. I um, mean, think of, think about the time period. Yeah, they, weren't, they weren't rejecting it for sure, they weren't rejecting sure. it for other reasons. <laughs> they weren't rejecting it for the racism. Weird um, Tales was not very pro progressive in it, 1933. It was published as a book in 1935 and it had a really terrible run of like 200 distributed copies really um <laughs> i'd love to have anything i make be distributed 200 times <laughs> so it was printed for i i was browsing the wikipedia page for this earlier it was printed 400 times they only bothered to bind 200 of the copies and then destroyed Ooh. the rest Ooh. <laughs> and so now it's one of like the big like literary collector's items is can you find a can you find a cloth bound copy with the dust jacket of H.P. Lovecraft's Shadow of Rinsmith. That's from very funny. I like this idea that the publisher got two hundred they bound it two hundred times and either got tired <laughs> or decided, you know what, we've wasted enough money on this. <laughs> Maybe they hadn't read it and as they were publishing it they kept getting snippets and they were like what? <laughs> I, I think it kind of shows that the the con the contribution that H.P. Lovecraft made to the modern literary world is not in his actual content, just in his vague background ideas. I think that's true. Thematically, he contributed a lot to like the ideas of horror and the way yeah. that we experience it. Some cool tones. Um, yeah, well, I mean, huh. can we talk for a second about the horror or lack thereof in this story? Uh, yeah. So... I, one thing that I want to bring up is that, um, and this is kind of in relation to this, kind of to start us on that, um, one thing that I want to bring up is that H.P. Lovecraft wrote cosmic horror. Like, right, right. He uh, basically created it. Yeah. yeah. It's horror focused on our lack of knowledge of something, of stuff that's just, uh, that's just too far out there beyond what we feel like we can know for the time. So, with that being said, was this scary at all? <laughs> um, 
in our time. No, 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 no. But there were there were two parts uh, to this episode, to this episode, to this uh, story that I looked at and went, okay, like there's there's some tension going on here. One is when uh, Zadok Allen just starts raving, yelling at him like a lunatic. I'm like, oh, okay, like this is a little disturbing. Like, I'm a, I'm a little fearful for our main character here. Um, but then the other part is when he's actually on the run in the middle of the night in Innsmouth. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, something might happen. I want something bad to happen, and then nothing ever does. <laughs> yes, and I think we'll talk about that a little bit further. I, I think so. Um, I think we, I think we will too. that more as far as like one of my later questions. Because later on, I want to talk about uh, what you found, what you guys found compelling about the story or its premise or anything else. But I think we should probably dive into the uh dive into one of the things that uh one of the things that made it hard for me to read one was the pacing there there's yep. some rough pacing in Paced this story badly. when 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 Nathaniel told me that he had read like half of the story and I was like oh wow you're just a you know a few pages away from away from where it actually gets good and something actually happens in the story <laughs> right yeah. um but the other thing is, let's talk about the H.P. Lovecraft racism. Yeah, it's basically a brand at this point. <laughs> yeah. Um, if we if we ever do um, the Call of Cthulhu on here, it's it's much worse than than this. This is much Wait. more subtle, but more uh, or it's H H.P. Uh, Lovecraft is much more in your face with it in the Call of Cthulhu, but in this one, it's a little bit more subtle. So if you if I'm calling this subtle. Yeah, this I, is not I was going to say, is that not, like, the whole point of this story is, like, a racist allegory? <laughs> it kind of feels like it a little bit. Like, is is this story, if I'm understanding this story right, what happens is, character hears about a really weird town where they're just weird and creepy, and you should probably stay away from he them. He hears about it three times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> from three, or four different people. <laughs> yeah. Um, just hears how weird the town is, finally gets into the town and goes, huh, yeah. My suspicions about this town being weird were absolutely right. Hey, I should talk to the oldest person here. Maybe he knows what's up. And what I love is that at some point, Zadok basically calls him out on it. Like, yeah, like, you obviously think we're weird. And you obviously think I'm crazy. Doesn't matter. I'm going to tell you what's going on anyway. Um, Which I love that kind of dichotomy. Mm -hmm. But then Zadok goes crazy on him and tells him this wild story about... A person who goes to foreign lands, learns really weird foreign customs and brings them back, and is definitely not a stable person to be around, caused problems for the village or the town, and, man, we should really keep those foreign ideas away, shouldn't we? I appreciate your (laughs) tongue-in-cheek way of referring to all of this. You just created, like, a good minute and a half soundbag of just pure racism for our show, (laughs) even referring sarcastically, so that's a cool thing you did for the internet. You're welcome. (laughs) Um... But, ladies and gentlemen, please pull Nathaniel's comments out of context. <laughs> yeah. No, please. By do the not. way, you just sunk any hope of like any kind of a political career. <laughs> it's done now. That's in the internet, and the internet never forgets. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it's pretty Sorry. bad, right? Yeah, like, it's pretty racist. Yeah. Like this is what I'm saying, right? Like even when we get the story within the story, it's another racist story. Yeah. Um, about the about the people that he goes to talk to, uh, our main character is uh, is Robert Olmsted, um, who we uh, who honestly his name isn't mentioned for a very very long time. 
it was long enough that I did not know he was a named character. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, one, one thing really quick is that, uh, this, uh, this very much is clearly an HP Lovecraft self insert. This is one of the, this is one of the few if only times where he, um, where he tells the story from the point of view of a character rather where the narrator is a character rather than kind of like an omniscient narrator just describing what's going on. Yeah. Okay, so that's really funny because I've only read like one or two other Lovecraft stories and they're the lesser known ones and they're the really short ones that are, oh, like that's 10 pages or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's got the same thing where it's like from the point of view of a character. Yeah. So that's really that's really yeah. odd that I've read I, those. I do know, yeah, so there are there are a few more but most of the time, uh, most of the time it's an omniscient narrator. Like if you read the Dunwich Horror, it's not told from the perspective of the, uh, uh, it's not told from the perspective of the, um, oh, what's their name? Anyway, the, the Wilbur, it's not told from the perspective of Wilbur or from the perspective of Dr. Armitage. It's, it's from an omniscient it's narrator. It's from an omniscient narrator. This is very much an HP Lovecraft, uh, an HP Lovecraft, um, um, self-insert he talks about he talks about this character as being a poor new england gently bred uh gently bred uh young man now listeners at home you can't see logan shaking his head and like burying his face in his hands which is anyway but that's how lovecraft would like to think of himself oh that is obvious yeah <laughs> um he he explicitly is searching for the cheapest way to do things because Lovecraft was out of money for like all of his life. <laughs> well, you know, times are tight. Yeah, and my favorite. Well, let is me the tell part you how hard it is to be a racist out on the streets. All right, <laughs> <laughs> you gotta you gotta pinch your pennies. <laughs> my favorite is he's like, how dare I spend a dollar at this hotel where all these lesser beings exist? <laughs> so yeah, we've we've skirted around it a lot. Greg, you have in the show notes. You want to talk about some of the specific associations that he has with some of these? Yeah. Characters characters so Gen oh sorry oh sorry uh, go ahead go ahead kind of to expand a little bit on the way this narrative is couched it's really interesting right he establishes the ethos of his tale by essentially saying like okay poor new england writer goes hears from a ticket clerk about a weird town but mm -hmm. you know that's the cheapest way to get to arkham so he's gonna he's gonna go through the weird town plus he kind of wants to see it so then he goes and he meets this museum lady who tells him about some artifacts from the weird town. She knows a little bit about it. Then he goes to the person, the store clerk, who lives in the weird town but isn't from there, and then he goes to talk to the person who's from there, uh, Zadok or Zadok Allen. So, uh, yeah, it's couched in this kind of, like, for the bulk of it, like, what if we just have blocks of dialogue of people talking, except for Anna Tilton, because, you know, it was the 30s and she was a woman, so <laughs> she didn't really get to talk much. Um, well, more yeah. on that later. But... Mm -hmm. <laughs> But yeah, this this whole thing is this sequence after sequence after sequence of people telling you in walls of dialogue about the place, right? Mm -hmm. And you want to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so let's talk about for a minute the relationship between um, the relationship between. I, I kind of want to go in the order you described. Okay. And I know I didn't put the bullet points in that no, order. No, you didn't. But we, we'll tr we'll keep it top of it. It'll be fine. Um, I. I kind of want to talk about the relationship between, I keep wanting to say H.P. Lovecraft because it's just right there, but uh, <laughs> between Robert Olmsted and the ticket clerk when he's going to get his uh, ticket to, you know, get to um, get to Arkham or or whichever place he was going beyond uh, 
beyond the the current town he was in, beyond Ipswich or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, he meets this ticket clerk, and I think it's useful to uh, I think it would be interesting or useful to pay attention to his relationship with this ticket clerk and how he describes him. What did you guys notice about his uh, engagement with that ticket clerk about his conversation? I got nothing here, guys. Okay, cool. Um, from what I recall, having, like I alluded, just recently, this guy seems to be like a pretty uh, amiable kind of fellow. One of the lines that stuck out to me was, he his speech showed him to be no local man, mm-hmm. and he seemed sympathetic toward my efforts at economy. <laughs> and so this is a guy who gives him suggestions about what buses to take that nobody else would give him, right? Um, again, this idea of him being not local, of being not from around there, is kind of important to the the guiding logic that Lovecraft is setting up as he writes this tale, right? This idea that the further you are from Innsmouth, the better, the more reliable you are. <laughs> um, you know, this is yeah. this is this is interesting uh, thing. I uh, I have this uh, class this semester with this professor who said we do this funny thing when we talk. Uh, when we tell stories to each other, where you'll start telling somebody a story, or frequently this happens, at least in our culture, and you'll say, and I was talking with this Mexican guy, and then you'll tell the rest of the story. And he, and nowhere in there is the fact that you are talking with a Mexican important to any other detail of the story. But for some reason, in our culture, we give details like that, like, a woman, or a man, or a white man, or a black man, or somebody who speaks with an accent, like anything like that, we give it to the to the listener because somehow there's this perception that if we don't give them that crucial detail, they won't get the story, even though they don't need that detail in the story. This is not what's going on with Lovecraft. It's the exact opposite. Lovecraft is like, no, you need to understand how bad the people of Innsmouth are. So I need to point out that like the people who are not from there are the better people. Mm-hmm. Um, this is uh, he's very amiable. He seems very sympathetic to uh, the ticket clerk. Seems very sympathetic to his situation, like Logan says. And so he's basically like the he's basically like fairly close to this. Um, fairly close, if not in like necessarily the described social status, like the the prestige of being. Uh, I, I'll do the... I'm doing, like, the, the air quotes, the gently bred New England <laughs> semi-nobility type of person yeah. that our narrators You could us. not make those air quotes big enough <laughs> to encapsulate. And he... That's what we should call this episode. We should call it gently bred in, like, <laughs> quotes. <laughs> so anyway, Terrible. he... Um, and then he goes on to... So he relates probably more than almost anybody else in the story to the the situation of our narrator. And then he goes on to say this. He goes on to say, but the real thing behind the way folks feel (laughs) is simply race prejudice. And I don't say I'm blaming those that hold it. (laughs) He goes on to say, uh, he said, well, this is like really important passage because it sets the parameters of what Lovecraft is doing here Mm -hmm. from a writing perspective. He is setting the boundaries of racism. He goes on to say, What a lot our New England ships used to have to do with queer ports in Africa, Asia, the South Seas, and everywhere else, and what queer kinds of people they sometimes brought back with them. Like, not only is he saying Innsmouth 
it like Lovecraft is clearly ascribing like oddness or strangeness to all other cultures other than like well bred again in air quotes or gently bred is that what he says gently bred I believe gently bred like, I, I don't know if it says that in that story, yeah but, but you that's know like, like yeah. the the general feeling that we've been encapsulating and and it's this idea that he immediately um it's it's not just Innsmouth right. Later on, this same character goes on to say, well, there must be something like that back of the Innsmouth people. So, like, he's basically saying the problem with the Innsmouth people is not that they're not human, it's that they're not white. (laughs) Yeah, which is wild. No, it's not, right? No, you're wrong, but it's not wild. It's wild to think think about in today's, like, I cannot imagine somebody writing a story and getting, like, any sort of traction in today's... Culture. I, I mean, there are racists out there, and they have like audiences and voices. So. Oh, that's yeah. fair. That's fair. But yeah, I mean, on on maybe a on maybe a note of what was different than compared to today, H.P. Lovecraft didn't get a lot of traction. Yeah. Point. Um. So maybe because what he was saying wasn't inflammatory yeah. in True. the 30s. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it was just bad writing. <laughs> yeah. Um. But, I've, I've said yeah. before. Um. That if you were an outside observer of the human race, and you wanted to just kind of, kind of like the general feel for what humans are like, it's very unlikely that you would start your search for the answer to that question in a country like the United States. You'd probably start it somewhere like China, where there's far more of a sample size of humans and living in the same culture because you look at the U.S., it's got, like, what, like, a quarter of the people, maybe less, that China does or that India does. And so I always find it interesting when people from the U.S., especially in the 30s, are like, and what strange people live in the rest of the world? Like, my guy, like, my guy, half of the world is in this specific landmass we call Asia. Like, I don't know. Sure. I, I think there's a lot we could do here to bring it back to the text. Like, racism is bad. Obviously, yeah. obviously, white people are not the center of the world, even though they've worked very hard to make themselves that. But of course. Um, but yeah, let's fo- let's. I agree, but let's focus it back on the text. I true, true. I want to point back to a couple of other details that um, that tie in with uh, that tie in with the ideas we've been talking about, though. Just pointing to them really quick. Um, he also this ticket clerk also says you've probably heard about that Salem man that came home with a Chinese wife referring, I believe, to Salem, Massachusetts. So tying in another historically spooky place to the (laughs) same idea. And he goes on to add, and maybe you know there's still a bunch of Fiji Islanders somewhere around Cape Cod, right? This idea of, like, the islands being an odd or spooky place is more what he's trying to establish, right? Mm -hmm. And, And this is a lot of what he does with some of these introductory characters that, by the way, are the ones that throw off the pacing of the entire tale, right? Um, Yes. But that's what he's trying to do, is he's trying to establish the ethos of, Mm -hmm. like, Innsmouth as this could be a scary place. Like all those other scary places you've never been to because (laughs) you're a white farmer, right? (laughs) Um, And and so I think that, I, I really like what you're saying here. I think it does a lot of work on that end to try and convey that feeling. Yeah. Um, I... I've, we spent a lot of time on the store clerk because he's like our first taste of this, but let's look at some of these other relationships. The next one is Anna you mean the Tilton. Ticket clerk? Yeah, the ticket clerk. Store clerk is later. Uh, the ticket the ticket clerk. So let's maybe move on to Anna Tilton and talk about how the, uh, how the town historian 
interacts with our protagonist and what we learn from that. Yeah, so I'm very excited because we do not have to talk about racism at this part, though we probably could. (laughs) Um, No, this is actually a really interesting thing from my perspective, at least, talking about Anna Tilton, who seems to be uh, one of two women in this story. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's a couple. We start getting into like his ancestry, but one of two living women referenced in the story. Um, now, I want to point out some of the words that he uses to talk about Anna Tilton later. So, let's see. Her own attitude towards Shadowed Innsmouth, which she had never seen. That's important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> was one of disgust at a community slipping far down the cultural scale. So we immediately established Anna Tilton as this kind of like culturally aware, culturally observant figure who has no real connection to Innsmouth other than having read some stuff and seen some books and some pictures or whatever. Um, But she thinks that they're way off base. The other thing that he says referring to her specifically was he refers to her as the pious Miss Tilton. It's important to remember that this is Miss Tilton (laughs) teaches us that she was never married. Um... Miss Tilton tells us she was never married, and pious. Um, this is New England. She's almost certainly Protestant. Yes, he also refers to her. H.P. Lovecraft's. Uh, if he if he's writing about them as pious and not strange, it's probably New England Protestant is what we're totally what we're going with. Totally. So the very idea of her being Miss sets her up as a kind of like virginal figure. Right? Yeah. Miss Miss Tilton is a virginal figure, which is going to be even odder when we go on and talk about how, at another point, he refers to her as, like, let me see if I can find the exact quote, as the ancient woman or as the ancient Miss Tilton. Um, he does that pretty quickly. Uh, refers to her as, like, the ancient librarian. She's old. I right? think that's the first description is, uh, is of her being... Uh, uh, is of her age. Yeah. Yes. Miss Anna Tilton, who lived nearby, and after a brief explanation... That ancient gentlewoman was kind enough to pilot me into the closed building. So he sets her up as kind of this old, perfect, pious virgin <laughs> who has lived a, a, a secluded life of knowledge and wonder her entire life. We, we haven't talked about it, but H.P. Uh, Lovecraft also seems to have had an aversion for all things sexual. Yeah. Uh, on a Freudian scale of... Uh, on, a Freudian, on a Freudian scale of uh, repressed to not repressed... Um, H.P. Lovecraft would be like a third point off. <laughs> with repressed like, being the middle point? Repressed being the middle point. <laughs> yeah, so I want to talk about, in contrast to Anna Tilton, uh, another wo- woman who is mentioned, one of the Marsh daughters. So the Marsh oh, okay. family is is the fish family. Right. The, yeah. they're, they're bred from the deep ones. Um What he says here is, one of the Marsh daughters was a repellent repellent reptilian-looking woman who wore an excess of weird jewelry, clearly the same exotic tradition as to that which the strange tiara belonged. My informant had noticed it many times, (laughs) right? So immediately you're set up with these two kinds of women who are tangentially important to the narrative insofar as they tell us things about, like, the jewelry Mm -hmm. of, which is what Anna Tilton does as well. Um, But it kind of is really interesting... uh, there were feminist theorists, some of the very first ones, named uh, Sandra Gilbert and Susan Gubar. I might have flipped their first names. But Gilbert and Gubar pitched this idea that in basically like straight white literature, the only role women can serve is to be either a an angel or a monster. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly what's going on here. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, one is literally the pious, chaste, knowledgeable Miss Tilton, and the other one is, and I quote, a repellent reptilian-looking woman. <laughs> um, it doesn't get much clearer than that, that he's he's got some biases here and some, some ancient tradition of kind of like female exclusionary writing, which yeah. I thought was interesting. Anyway, I kind of monopolized the discussion about Miss Tilton, but... I'm glad... I'm. You, you seemed really excited about this yeah, before, we, before, <laughs> before we started recording. You seemed really excited to talk about this, so I, I'm, I'm glad we got to hear what you had to say. Yeah, it just it turned out to be a, a significantly more important text from like a feminist perspective than I expected it to be, because it is so racially charged. <laughs> and so any reprieve from that, any opportunity to think about anything else was very very exciting for me. Mm -hmm. it, we're learning a lot of things. Uh, we're learning a lot of things about H.P. Uh, Lovecraft in terms of who he was as a person and what informed his writing. Yeah, and what opinions he seems to have held. Right. Yeah. Not, not ideal. Did you? Have I might push back against about against that later when we get to the end of our discussion about what kinds of opinions he held. Okay. I might. I might push back again. You should know he was a racist. Oh, I know he was. I and I know like a like in the in the various subsets of being racist, he was definitely anti-Semitic specifically. Um, yeah, he was like from the text very clearly more than that. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> well, okay, I'll just I'll push back against this a little bit. Yeah, we should um, have this discussion. <laughs> it, it's clear uh, this character. Um, hmm. The way that it's written, it seems like this is intended to be read in one sitting and was intended essentially to be written in one sitting. And when the character goes into the writing of it, he's like, okay, like, I know there's been a lot of stuff said about Insmith recently. I gotta, like, set the score. Here's what's going on. Um, and he basically is like, here's what happened to me. Here's why the government ended up getting involved in. Gosh darn it, I was wrong. I was so wrong. I need to join them. Is essentially the message, right? Um, mm. At the end of it, mm. but it's but it's a sign of madness at the end. Yeah, eh. that okay. So to tie this together, I don't think there's actually a disagreement here because what because um, what H.P. Lovecraft is doing with this at the beginning of the story, he comes in with, "I have to get this off my mind. It will help me make a decision." Yes. That I feel like I need like that I need to make. If I get this all on paper, it'll make things clear for me. And then at the end, he's uh, he is losing touch with sanity, which is a theme of cosmic horrors. That once the once the windows of reality are opened to you, once um once your mind is no longer protected by uh, the by the barriers that society and culture and sane minds keep up to to protect themselves from stuff they couldn't comprehend you do and you do then go mad um so he's uh which Foucault would call just another form of knowledge please go on okay uh so I, I don't think there's actually a disagreement here because he starts off with I'm writing this down to make a decision and then we see the events that happened and then at the end we see him essentially what's what we're supposed to see is he's spiraling into madness it's not that he's going to join them because he's come to this knowledge. It's he's going to join them because he's realized who he is mm. and that that is his place. Yeah, and I think to add further, there's two timelines here, right? Mm -hmm. There's the timeline of the story events and there's the timeline of the writing of the story, yeah. which is literally from first word to last word. You can trace the thoughts. Poe did this a lot as well, right? It's a, it's a pretty common tradition in horror to like trace the thoughts of a character throughout the events of a, 
of a thing or the recollection of the events. And I think kind of where I would differ with you on this, Nathaniel, is this idea that, you know, he doesn't, he's not setting the record straight that they're like a good or up, virtuous or upright people. In context, in fact, like Greg said, he's not trying to set anything straight. He says he's going to work through it and he feels comfortable doing it now because the events are so far apart, right? Yeah. It's been so long. Mm-hmm. And so he's, this is not like, this is a very introspective piece of writing, which it seemed to have been for Lovecraft too. <laughs> yeah. And I, I do want to talk about that more later, but I think we should hit on a couple more characters really quick. Totally. Um, totally. One is the store clerk, which I think, uh, which I think is pretty, uh, one, sorry, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just very hot in this room. So I'm fanning myself. Real okay. Quick. You look like you're about to enter a fainting spell, the likes of which you've never experienced before. <laughs> the fish people, they're coming. <laughs> Okay, Actually, yeah. I think maybe let's skip the the store clerk and just I wanted to bring up a couple of things about Zadok Allen that uh, that I noticed. He's um, he's described I think as like uh, I think he's described as like not being one of the fish people hybrids. Yeah, like he, yeah. He's, Pointedly not. And he has gone beyond the point of sanity. Now he's been driven to drink basically, um, and during his conversation with our narrator, he goes beyond the point of sanity. Multiple times. Uh, yeah. In uh, in expositing what's going on in um, in Innsmouth. Um, but let's move on to... Actually, let's move right into what we were talking about a minute ago. How does the final fate of our protagonist, like realizing he is going to undergo the Innsmouth transformation, um, reflect Lovecraft's fears? Okay, so it's, like, really obvious what Lovecraft is afraid of here. Yeah. And that's that people of different skin colors might... That they might breed, that they might produce offspring, Mm -hmm. right? Not even that they might breed, that they might interbreed. Yeah, that's what I mean, right? I think that's the distinction is what I Yeah, that they might interbreed together, right? Like, um, he's terrified of this fact that, you know... And and he clearly alludes to this throughout, that by, by distinguishing the Innsmouthers as a literal other non-human race. There was That was a common belief at the time to think that there was probably some genetic difference between white people and other races, right? And so, like, by making that distinction, he's essentially saying, like, they shouldn't breed, like, it's terrible. It actually, like, this story ends really badly, in my view, because, like, it essentially ends with, as he spirals into madness, saying, like, my uncle killed himself because of this family heritage, and I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do, like, the crazy thing. Right, so it almost like valorizes um, the decision of the uncle to like try and end the the mixed heritage, mm-hmm. which is like really upsetting and not good. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that sucked. So we have some <laughs> eugenics yeah. here. Yeah. We some. Uh, we have some like 1950s eugenics like precursors here. Well, it's it's fascinating too because uh, this is clearly supposed to be the bit of the story. Chapter 5 is supposed to be the bit of the story that is terrifying, Mm -hmm. where he realizes that he's a descendant of the fish people and he will become one of the fish people. And, like, that's what's supposed to be what's terrifying, and it's just not. Furthermore, let me be clear on this point. One of the things that he mentions as part of his discovery as becoming a fish person is like, and then I realized I wasn't afraid of the ocean. I wanted to go into the ocean. And if I... 
if I could have that catharsis just <laughs> enter into my being where I was no longer afraid of the depths. Uh, We've talked about this. Yeah, this I would trade about. just about anything. So it, it's <laughs> supposed you know, it, to be scary, it's, but it's actually like kind of rad. Like you like Logan, here's the thing. Here you want to get over your fear of the ocean depths? It's real simple. Is this a tangent? Are you ready to take the first oath of Dagon? Oh, yeah, true. <laughs> Once you've done that, we can give you that's, the second and the third oath. That's not true. You're only supposed to take the first two, and then you have to live as the totally normal, not crazy white guy in the streets. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's um, right. Who then apparently gets sacrificed? Wait, what? Is that not the read you guys took from it? No, he ran away. I, it's unclear if he got sacrificed or just, you know, kind of like kidnapped and murdered by the fish people. Wait, he, sorry, what? Yeah. Zadok Allen. Yeah. 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 So I'll pull it up from the wiki because it'll be easier. Oh, okay. Um, that would probably be the only way to explain it. Let me see here. Characters. Uh, Open Marsh. Bernard. Okay. I did not think that that was what happened. One of the few completely human residents of Innsmouth and an alcoholic. His drunken ramblings allow Lovecraft to convey much of the town's secret backstory to the story's protagonist. Born in 1831, Alan disappears and dies in 1927 after being taken and sacrificed by the esoteric order of Dagon. When did that... Sorry, okay. That's the end it, of the chapter three. That, that's on Wikipedia, right? That is... Well, on the uh, lovecraft.fandom.com. It, it, it has the same text on the Wikipedia article. It does not explicitly reveal no. what happens to him. It just says that he kind of disappears. Well, and like, I'm going to contend with the fans who wrote the Lovecraft wiki real quick, because another heavy wave dashed against the loosening masonry of the bygone wharf and changed the mad ancient's whisper to another inhuman and blood-curdling scream. He screams. I'm not going to even try and approximate that dialogue. <laughs> Before I could recover my scattered wits, he had relaxed his clutch on my shoulder and dashed wildly inland toward the street reeling northward around the ruinous warehouse wall. I glanced back at the sea, but there was nothing there, and when I reached Water Street and looked along it toward the north, there was no remaining trace of Zadok Allen. He runs away. Mm. Like, there's not even any implication that he would have been grabbed. I mean, other than he thinks they're after him. Yeah. Right? Okay, fair point. And this segues nicely into what I actually want to talk about with okay. this story, which is that I don't think that the cult of Dagon is a sinister thing. And I don't. I think that every panic experienced by the main character is completely and utterly imagined. It totally could be, but I want to hear how you how you explain it. Okay, let's start with like when he really starts to get spooked, which is when he's in his hotel room in chapter four, mm -hmm. and he hears distinctly the lock of somebody turning their key and opening his door. Mm -hmm. Although he doesn't ever really describe the noise of them opening the door, he says, "I heard them turning my key," and it's like, "Hey." Have y'all ever been in a room and you know that really familiar sound of somebody turning a key from the outside, <laughs> like, of your hotel room? Yeah. I don't know. Like, <laughs> we're talking about 1930s locks here. Like, it could have really been any noise, right? And then he's like, and then I heard them go to the other side. And the other side, he probably was just hearing people walking around him, right? Yeah. Like, could have been. And then he, like, jumps out the window. Well, he even says that it didn't even occur to him at the time. That it could have just been something totally innocent. He doesn't. Yeah, it never occurred to him. Yeah, but he says that specifically. Like, he's like, it didn't even occur to me that maybe they just, like, had the wrong room and they were trying to find their own room yeah, at he, the time. He's, like, really clear on the point that, like, it's sinister and mm -hmm. it's bad, right? Yeah. And then he, like, runs away and he's like, and then I heard people coming after me. Yeah, dog, you, like, jumped out a window. Like, of course somebody came to look what was <laughs> up. Like, and they don't pursue him very far. Right. He runs, and then he's like, and then I ran into the night guard, 
And then the night guard starts shooting. Yeah, dog, you were running through the streets at night. <laughs> like, right. of course they started following you. And they don't look very hard for him either. He falls asleep in some bushes. Like, and then he's totally fine. Right, it's wild. I don't think that there's any real threat here. Um, as a side note, I just uh, looked this up about the esoteric order of Dagon. Uh, according, again, to the same wiki site, so bear with me. Uh, uh, the esoteric order of Dagon exists in real life. Mixing concepts from the writings of Lovecraft and the occultist author Alistair Crowley, among oh, other no. things. Uh, oh, boy. Uh, we'll keep this light, but you've done a lot of research on that person, have oh, you not? I know a lot about Alistair Crowley. Uh, do you want to give us the mm, no. G version? We do not have time. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> but he was, let's just say... Uh, a uh, really interesting figure. They called him the wickedest man on earth. Uh, was just kind of renowned for just like trying all kinds of wild stuff. Basically, if, if somebody you know says they're involved in something surrounding him, you know, like be respectful, but also like maybe like, I don't know, help get them out of something that could potentially be dangerous for them. <laughs> so there's, there's no truly dangerous cults out there. I don't want to like spread illusions and be like, these people are like killing people. Like that's not a thing. But at the same time, like, of course he's tied up in this, right? Right. Um, yeah, this idea of, like, this esoteric order. Of course they're, they're real things. That really pulled us on a tangent there, though. Yeah. Again, I don't think they're dangerous in real life, and I don't think they're dangerous in the story. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's just, it's kind of wild that it does exist based on this story, at least a little. Mm-hmm. It, it's not very, his whole flight out of Innsmouth is not very thought through. It's very, um, it's very gut reaction, which is also where... H.P. Lovecraft is personally and where he's expecting his readers to be reacting with horror to this situation is on a very visceral level. Totally. Um, I thought, and here's here was my takeaway, I think that since the protagonist is an H.P. Lovecraft stand-in, I thought it was kind of interesting to think of his think of the final reveal as like Lovecraft's deepest fear that he's not as special as he thought he was. <laughs> That's a cool yeah. take. That's a really good take. Um, and that uh, history has not been kind and that to we him. Might... He truly was not as special as he thought he was. <laughs> and that none of us might be as special as we think we are, as you know, you know, white totally. males of the I middle mean, class. And this what, is uh, this is whatever. reflective in the final conflict, right? In my read of the final conflict, as something totally imaginary, right? Yeah. One of my favorite things that he says is, "Riding, so- rising softly, and throwing my flashlight on the switch." I sought to light the bulb of, over my bed in order to choose a swift to to choose and pocket some belongings for a swift, valiseless flight. Nothing, however, happened, and I saw that the power had been cut off. <laughs> Clearly, some cryptic evil movement was afoot at a large scale. <laughs> It's like his light switch doesn't work. And that clearly means that some cryptic evil movement was afoot on a large scale. It's a very first world problem kind of well, feeling. It's 1932, most light switches didn't work. Also, this is, even if they did, like in most of New England, he's established that this town is kind of run down. Yeah. Like he's made that an established fact. And if I'm not mistaken, this is only he only spends one night in the town, right? Yeah, and he enters during the daytime, so there's no evidence I I don't think he ever turns the light on in the first place. Well and <laughs> so even if moment. he does though, like he doesn't know if there's like a curfew policy with the lights, like he doesn't know if like the city just doesn't have the power to run it all night. Like well, he doesn't know anything, which is really interesting. And the reason why is a quote that I wanted to hearken back to. Okay. Um, With Anna Tilton, where she had never visited Innsmouth herself? No, much, much worse than that. Oh, good. Um, This is when he himself is in Innsmouth. 
All right. Warning me that many of the street signs... This is when he's talking to the store clerk. Warning me that many of the street signs were down. The youth drew from my benefit a rough but ample, ample and painstaking sketch map of the town's salient features. After a moment's study, I felt sure it would be of great help. <laughs> so he looks at it. He's like, this seems useful. <laughs> it's like the most video game thing that's ever happened. You like put the map down. And it's like, character, I should probably take this for later. <laughs> like, pick it back up. Link walks um, into room, opens big chest, sees a, like a crayon drawn map yes. and takes it with him. And you're like, this tells me nothing about the dungeon, but yeah. could be useful. But then he goes on to say, disliking the dinginess of the single restaurant I had seen. Dude walks by a restaurant. like, that restaurant sucks. <laughs> And then he says, I bought a fair supply of cheese crackers and ginger wafers to serve as a lunch later on. My program, I decided, would be to thread through the principal streets, talk with any non-natives I might encounter, and catch the 8 o'clock coach for Arkham. You know what a great way to learn a city is? It's to thread the principal streets, talk with any non-natives you might encounter, and catch the next flight out of there. As, yeah, you'll really get a good vibe of how the city's operating at that, at that level. As, as an anthropology major, he start. I just want to say that he starts off his tale uh, shortly after, he, or while he's talking, or just after he talks with the ticket clerk, saying, and I was now filled with anthropological zeal. And then he goes in and says, but I'm not going to talk to anybody who lives there. Right, you know why, right? He's got to protect the local customs. Oh my gosh. <laughs> no. But yeah, so this idea of like... He He's said, a no key and peel zone. I'm oh, sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, actually, there is a key. This is a key zone because as we all know, we would recognize the sound of a key being turned in the lock. <laughs> <laughs> Instinctively. <laughs> Anybody would. Uh, any... You know, in yeah. any state of mind at any time. And no matter how tired you were and if it just barely woke you up. Yeah. Well, so hearkening back to like him learning about like his heritage as uh, one of these fish people... Uh, have you guys ever seen videos of, like, staunch racists taking DNA tests and getting the results? No. What? Okay. I I, I what do you think I, I do have. with my time? I don't know. I was just <laughs> wondering I if you barely yeah. read this. Like, it's it's the... I've, I've only seen, like, one or two, but it's, like, the wildest thing when they're like, yeah, and, like, uh, four generations back, like, you had, like, a descendant of Africa in your in your genetics and they're like no that can't be true like that's impossible and it's like i mean like my guy like this is kind of how the world works science just opened up the the windows of reality for the those windows people of reality to them and their minds could not comprehend it in a cosmic scale to <laughs> bring this back to the text and to our character yeah. the windows of reality are constant or the windows of science open to reality for him all the time he just refuses to look through them. As you mentioned, the anthropological zeal, but no actual real effort at but, anthropology. But no actually participant, no actual participant observation or like yeah. good ethnography. Just or I like this. <laughs> the town I could see formed a significant and exaggerated example of communal decay. But being no sociologist, I would limit my serious observations to the field of architecture. How That's you know nothing. That's nothing that he just said. <laughs> He's like, looks pretty bad here. But you know, I'm no scientist, so we'll leave the scientists to say that. And even later, he's like, I I can't say for sure it was bad in Innsmouth, but I mean, the government took a bunch of them, so it must have been bad, right? And it's like this this constant like leaning to like pseudoscience and to like the vague opinions of other people. I love this in connection with our narrators, right? Our four narrators we talked about earlier, who get less and less reliable. The ticket guy, who's not from anywhere around there, then the museum lady who has read about it but has never been and therefore couldn't possibly know anything realistic. It's so about great to it. be that she's like the curator of these objects. 
and has never and then, <laughs> been there. It's like it's like ten minutes away. I know. She doesn't even have to try to go there. This isn't like she oh could no, like accidentally I've... sleepwalk. Right. <laughs> it's not like she's been given like a bunch of Egyptian artifacts and just has said, you know what, I've never been out there, but like I've talked to a lot of people who have. But there's even a bus. But there's a bus. A daily bus. And then we get even further, which is to the kid who lives in Arkham but makes his daily commute, this is like 16, 17 year old kid, to work in the grocery store. <laughs> That's a reliable narrator. And then to the literal crazy person. So <laughs> who is slobbering drunk. He makes he makes deeper appeals to ethos, right? Like, oh, mm-hmm. this guy's not from around here. She's from around here but has never been. Oh, he's there every day. Oh, he's been here his whole life. But each person becomes more and more reliable or unreliable in Lovecraft's view. Starts off with like a sympathetic guy, then a woman. I mean, we can trust her because it's the 30s, but like, that's like the claim he's making, right? Less mm-hmm. reliable. And then a youth, which would be less reliable in the 30, from a 30s standpoint than a woman, and then a crazy person, right? So on the one hand, he establishes this ethos of like, the closer to, to the place, but also the less reliable they become the closer they get to Innsmouth, yeah. right? Which is like, terrible and awful and just another great way that Lovecraft absolutely butchers kind of some cool lore about some underwater people. <laughs> I mean, this whole thing reads like the bad prologue to a really racist Aquaman comic, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I was like, the only one who got this vibe? Like, like, this is just racist setup for Arthur Curry to come and unite the, the kingdom people, of the right? trench. Yeah, exactly. Yes, it is the kingdom of the trench. Yeah, oh my god! This is literally an Aquaman comic. <laughs> so, um, I... I was going to specifically ask how um, how his prejudice has affected your experience with the story, but I, I think we covered that. Yeah, we talked uh, <laughs> at length about that. Um, how much time do we have left? We're say? about out. Okay, <laughs> we've actually run pretty long. I I would like to I would like to hear your quick takes on with all of that. What did you find compelling, and would you read it? Uh, would you read this story again? Uh, Nathaniel. Okay, so I thought this story was trash. Um, not mad I read it, but like I was like, oh, I was hoping for something more. Lovecraft's always talked up. I wanted more. Um, with that said, it did make me really interested, though, in the rest of the Cthulhu mythos. And I really want to go into that. Um, and as for whether or not I were to read it again, uh, if I ever uh, run a Lovecraft RPG for you guys, then I will probably <laughs> be reading a ton of Cthulhu Mythos and definitely coming back to this. Don't worry, you can get a support ally object card that is Anna Tilton in the Arkham Corner. <laughs> That's <laughs> very good. So yeah, just oh, no. ruminate on the fact that she's an object in oh, that game. No. That's... Um, oh. Logan? <laughs> I... Um... I, you know, I didn't hate it. I hated the racism because racism sucks. Uh, like Nathaniel said, he has, he's establishing some stuff that's legitimately kind of interesting and has some cool foundations for, like, what will come after it. Um, a lot of, like, cosmic horror is very fascinating. Lovecraft did not write the best of it, but he wrote the first of it, right? right. And so that's, I, th- there's an importance to that here. I would reference this again if I was writing a paper on colonialism, probably. Huh. Uh, I would probably reference it in connection with feminist theory. I would read this again if I was writing a paper, <laughs> basically. Yeah. I don't think it has much like good entertainment value. It's incredibly boring and badly paced um, and super racist. But uh, for like, I don't think it's the worst academic piece. I don't think it's the worst lens we can use to view, or we, worst text we can use to view other other pieces and other ideas. And as for me, 
I I just I'll probably read this again multiple times in the future just because I really like the idea of the deep ones like yeah. these people living down there. I think they're super cool. I thought the strangeness of, like the the part about it that made it not so scary at all for me was that this is I I thought the strangeness of it was super cool. Like the idea that there could be something out there was a source of like intrigue. Mm, sure. Um, obviously, there's not people living down at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> but then the ocean is pretty mysterious, and I like the idea from a fictional perspective. Yeah, totally. So we'll have to wait for Avatar two before we know for sure yeah. what's in the ocean. I'm, I'm gonna go watch the. Um, I'm gonna go watch that uh, new Kristen Stewart movie. The, the horror movie that takes place at the bottom of the ocean. Sorry, what? I know nothing about yeah, this. Hit me up. Um, I, I think it's... Oh, is it called Trench? What is it called? No, that's the new 21 Pilots album. Or is it just... Oh, what's it called? Anyway, I can't I can't remember what it's called, but it's Kristen Stewart's new horror... or Underwater. Thriller. Underwater, that's what it was. It's a great yeah. movie. Yeah. Wait, it's an underwater go, movie that takes place underwater? I want to go see it because it's a... It's a complete nod to this idea of Dagon or Cthulhu and fish people. I like this a lot. Um, yeah, um, you have to realize most horror movies have really on-the-nose titles. Like my, like the one that's recently <laughs> gained popularity for absolutely no connection to any events that are happening in the real world. Uh, Contagion. I wonder what that film's about. <laughs> Pandemic. wonder what that film's about. Quarantine. <laughs> uh, these films are all very on-the-nose, right? Parasite. Horror movies, <laughs> a quiet place, very on the nose names for horror movies. You gotta, you gotta let the people know what they're getting into. It's true. It's true. <laughs> anyway, that's that was kind of all I had. I, I am glad that you guys found it interesting, and I really enjoyed the discussion because up, up till now I haven't had a really great chance to talk about this with, uh, talk about this story with anybody else, and I really appreciated the comments that you guys had. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Well, thanks so much for, for leading us through that discussion. I'm glad we had a chance to talk about it as well. Next episode, we're going to be talking about the... It's BBC, right? BBC film. I believe so. It was uh, Mr. Holmes, which is uh, Ian McKellen playing an old, aged Sherlock Holmes. Nathaniel, you, you picked this one out for us. Give us the, give us the soft pitch. Soft pitch. Uh, like you said, it's an older Sherlock Holmes, um, and the story takes place shortly after World War II. Um, within, I think, 10 years after is my understanding of it. Um, and he is living by himself in the countryside and it's great and I love it. You should love it too. Awesome. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Please like and subscribe, rate and subscribe this podcast on iTunes or wherever you're finding it. I don't know where you're finding it. Um, it's mostly on iTunes right now. <laughs> uh, tell your friends who might enjoy listening. Uh, and you can go ahead and find us on social media at peep this noise on Twitter. I'd like to give a special thank out. Thanks out to Katie Davidson and the band key losers for the use of our theme song, I don't know why from the album California Light L I T E California Light is a great album. If you haven't listened to it yet after just hearing the first episode and the theme song, you really should check that album out because it absolutely rocks. Uh, so this has been Peep This Noise. Thanks so much for listening and remember, everybody likes Every we can't even go one episode without you interrupting the outro. Just remember, everybody likes bad things. Open up your mind. Inside